0: Hold on to your
1: butt. Welcome to episode 47 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Joined as always by my co host Mary, the only woman in Canada who knows the secret ingredient to make a fireball blizzard at the DQ. I am, as usual, only Darren. Hello, Mary. How are you? Hello. I'm good. How are you? Oh, couldn't be better. <laughs> couldn't be better. It's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood.
0: I'm glad you didn't <clears throat> give away my secret. Though. I'm not going to tell you a secret. <laughs>
1: i you save fireball for the kids. I'm surprised you just don't take it off yourself. That's another
0: story. Well, you know, depends on how my day's going at the DQ. <laughs> I can only
1: imagine. I can only imagine. So things are going well? Yeah, we had a great weekend. We had a good live. It's a great historical weekend we just finished up with here. We had the end of Tullahoma, the Vicksburg campaign coming to an end, and of course, the Battle of Gettysburg, which we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, I think if you're a Civil War died-in-the-world nerd-slash-loser-like-us, this is one of those Christmas Eve type weekends, and I think it's one that everyone embraces, and we have a, certainly a lot of fun. I know a lot of people on Twitter had a lot of fun. It was definitely a fun time yep. um, live tweeting the Battle of Gettysburg, was. which is always a good time.
0: Yep, it was, and definitely enjoyed that this year. <laughs> Like It's funny to see the people from the Western theater, they start talking about like Tullahoma and Vicksburg and all that. And I do feel kind of bad that those ones get a little bit left behind. But in a way, I get it because it's like Gettysburg is a battle. There's a lot happening. Whereas Tullahoma is like it's a campaign, but it's still really important. And it's really interesting. Like I actually read a little bit about it. And it was really...
1: Oklahoma, it's unfortunate because it's a, your point, it's a great battle, but it's that, it's that kid in the, the little kid at the basketball in elementary school who all the big kids never pick. Exactly. Raises his hand. Gettysburg. Vicksburg. Me, 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 me. No, yep, Tullah, there's
0: no. Tullahoma no Tullahoma
1: you know but that's exactly what it but it's
0: an important <laughs> exactly.
1: and like we say many times all battles matter yeah. so perhaps next year Mary we will do the battle of Tullahoma we, will, we shall see I not that so. I get to say do you, do you mean tell
0: do you mean Tullahoma campaign
1: oh yeah but I mean regardless it's it's what we'll, we'll do something with that we'll have a lot of fun with yeah, that. Exactly. So I think I think it's important to talk yeah. about it and we can talk about all this stuff so
0: but for now we are staying in the eastern theater and we are talking Gettysburg tonight and we are talking but about... hold up wait one
1: minute We have business to do first.
0: Look at me getting ahead again. (laughs) I know. And then Jay Johnson Pettigrew gets shot and he dies. And Lee
1: crossed the river and that's it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for (laughs) stopping by. So I will ask you, since I am the host, apparently, of this episode, is uh, what are you drinking tonight, Matt?
0: I am drinking Whitewater High Tide New England IPA. And I chose High Tide just because the Battle of Gettysburg ends with Pickett's Charge, which is the Confederate high water mark. Oh, okay. Well, oh, I know. Very creative. Yeah, okay. not, not really. And I'm Whoa. drinking it out. <laughs> you better stop down. Creativity is going through the roof. And I'm drinking it out of our mug, which Somebody I bought. Met, the, company yes, the company mug. yes. Very good.
1: Well, since you didn't ask, I will tell you, I'm drinking... Is called Death or Glory by Loving Ireland. I chose this one, obviously, because that was the choice that Robert E. Lee had. He had to decide whether he was going to take Death or Glory as he was running away from Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about that in detail today. And as far as what I'm drinking out of, I'm drinking it out of the Ride with the Winner mug from, from our friend Mr. LaRoe here. Yes. Because that's kind of what it was. It was kind of a big union day a little bit for the most part. Yeah, exactly. Abraham Lincoln's opinion notwithstanding. But we'll <laughs> talk about that. So we were hinting before, as we started this, about this is going to be the end of Gettysburg. Now, we're going to be talking about Lee's retreat. So I don't want you to get excited when we say retreat. We're not talking O.O. Howard here. Okay? <laughs> we're talking Lee. So I want you to keep your bearings, Mary. When we say retreat, you're going to sit there and do your whole Christian general thing. Well, we,
0: according to you know, our live, he can't retreat anywhere right now because someone threw his running shoes up on top of a telegraph line and they're hanging over <laughs> the telegraph that's line that's right, that's now. <laughs> right now. just <that's
1: laughs> stuck on that. So that's the way it so goes. We will we'll, we'll talk about OOA. We have some fun with OOA. But, you know, as everybody knows, that you know, the Battle of Gettysburg ends on July 3rd, 1863 with the Pickett-Pettigrew Trimble charge, right? The assault. As we all know, it was a devastating feat for Robert E. Lee and the Confederates. So... So Robert Lee was faced with a dilemma. He had to save his army because he wants to fight another day. He knows he was beat. And we'll talk about some of the overall campaign goals. But I think he did what he had to do. And he knew he was going to lose. We so he had to get out of there. So the most important thing for him was he needed to get his army. And more importantly, all those supplies he'd been gathering back to Virginia. It's, it's a huge, huge task. So we're going to kind of really quick summarize and we'll kind of go into detail. He needs to get 50,000 troops, okay, this is what's left, right, along with about 20,000 slaves and support people, plus about 10,000 injured soldiers, right? Yep. He needs to get them all about 50 miles away to a mountain range into Virginia, okay? He also has almost 60 miles of supply wagons that he needs to get. There are two mountain paths. Houses. He needs to get through Monterey Gap and Cashtown Gap will talk about. It. They're both about 500 feet high in their thin. And just for laughs, let's throw in the fact it's going to rain every friggin' day.
0: Exactly. The yeah.
1: entire the entire time. This is so like besides, his mud march. It was. But besides all that, it's pretty easy. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had everything going against him. The other issue he had was the amount of leadership he lost. We talked before about the strength of the Union leadership many, many times. But we talk about Grant and Sherman specifically. Mm-hmm. In the East, that's where most of the Confederate leadership was. He lost a ton of it in this battle. Pickett's charge alone, as well as the other divisions, they lost a ton. In Pickett's division, every one of his brigade commanders was lost.
0: Armstead, right?
1: Armstead, you know, he didn't make it. Nope. You know, Kemper got shot. Kemper. he was bullet lodged into his spine. He survived. No one ever knows what happened to Rich Garnett. No, Garnett was like
0: I was listening to a lecture about that, and they say like he was apparently wearing like a new uniform when he went out there, so they think someone probably took the uniform. And then he was just, he's now lost to history. don't know where he he's is. He's just gone. He's yep. gone.
1: 13 of the, of the 15 regimental commanders in that division, gone. This is huge. Now, Lee, as we all know, he blamed himself, you know, and, and he really did a full 180 since that, since the battle began. Now we talked when he coming into Gettysburg, they were sky high. Forget about Chancellorsville for a second here. They're coming off of second Winchester, right? Mm-hmm. The, everything is coming up Bobby Lee at this point. After Gettysburg, he's going to lose about 20, 21,000 guys, right? He's going to lose a whole bunch of those guys. The mood was completely different. So they went from sky high to the bottom. And this was the mood, this was the environment Robert E. Lee and the Confederate Army had leaving Gettysburg, right? They knew it was time to go. They achieved their primary goal. Their really primary goal was they needed to gather supplies. Mm-hmm. And when they left Pennsylvania, they had thousands of cattle, sheep, chickens, you name it. They had everything to sustain their army. Vegetables. They had forage for the horses. They had a whole bunch of things.
0: Dinosaurs. He had
1: dinosaurs. He had those little had Flintstone vitamins, everything they needed, <laughs> they had, right? So he knew he had to get it back because if he didn't get that stuff back, the whole thing was wasted, right? The Gettysburg campaign was successful in that regard. If they can get everything back, the battle was a was a disaster, but the campaign, if the campaign was about supplies, was successful. Mm-hmm. Now his first challenge he was going to have, the very first thing he had to deal with, was how was he going to deal with all these injured and these sick and these wounded in these camps? So if you remember, they had ten division hospitals spread out all around Gettysburg, so they're all over they're all over the place, based on where those divisions fought. Right, those camps were full of ambulances and wagons and tents, the whole deal. Now they had set up that triage system just like the Federals did at, at Camp Letterman, so. To based on how severe your, your injury was, determine what your future really held. So these hospitals, Lee knew needed to be evacuated, right? Those who could walk would walk, those who couldn't walk, but could be moved would end up in the back of these ambulances and take that rickety ride through the hills. Those who couldn't, who were too injured to move, they were SOL and JWF. Yeah. And Isaac Trimble
0: was one of them. He was left behind because he had to have his leg amputated because he was so severely wounded in the Mm. um, Pettigrew picket Trimble charge. Imagine getting wounded in your own charge. No, that's not good. (laughs) No. So he's going to end up as we've talked before, he's going to end up as a prisoner of
1: war. So right off the bat, the other thing. So he has all these people. So he has to decide who's going, who's not going to make it. If you were left behind, you're going to be left with the mercy of the Union Army, mm-hmm. and that was a big, big deal, right? The other issue was Lee had about four, four to five thousand, about four thousand prisoners of war from the Federals that he, they had caught, right? Mm-hmm. So he was hoping that George Meade would exchange them on the spot, and Meade said, "No, sorry, Bob." No,
0: no, and that was because Literally. that that was because of the rules that were in place at the time from. From Ooh. like Lincoln in the War Department, they weren't doing exchanges at that point.
1: We did not have authority to do so. He had to say no, which is too bad. But he had to follow orders, right? So he forced Lee to take those additional four thousand people back as well. July fourth. This is the, the day that Vicksburg fell to Grant. I heard in a recent podcast, Mary. It, it was around here when Lee started to formulate his plan to take these all these people plus all those supplies back to Virginia over the Potomac. So right around sunset on July fourth, the fireworks are just probably finishing up, probably mm-hmm. although it was raining. He's sitting at the Thompson House and he makes his initial plans where his headquarters was. First, we had to realize. Meade's not going to attack, so we can figure this thing out now. Because he took a little bit of time to see what Meade's intentions were. So he, he has an idea what he wants to do. So after dark, he's going to take a ride over to um, A.P. Hill's headquarters over at the Pitzer Farm, which is located where the modern-day amphitheater is over there. Yep. That's where A.P. Hill's his headquarters was. So by candlelight, they are going to sit down and discuss and organize this great escape plan with his corps commanders, James Longstreet, A.P. Hill, and Richard Yule. Their goal, they had to, f- to screen the wagons to get out They had to screen themselves to get out. And they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could. And they had to do this as quietly as they possibly could. So this was an enormous, enormous task for Lee. I mean, and we'll talk about how that historically probably ranks up with a lot of his things, because this is probably up there with, with what that was, they're going to decide A.P. Hill is going to be the lead guy. He is going to be the one who's going to lead the retreat. They talk about how Gettysburg has 10 roads and it's a hub of all that. There are really two ways for them to escape, right? One is through the Chambersburg Pike. Mm-hmm. Other is down the Fairfield Road. They're both going to lead that South Mountain Range and it's about a 15-mile trip to the Potomac River. So that's that's the, the direction they know they have to go. So they have to figure out, okay, logistically, how are we going to make this work? They come up with a game plan. So Lee, right off the bat, knows his army is spread out all over the place. All They're extended about, over about a six-mile window all around Gettysburg. So he's going to need to get these guys together first. So he's got to blow the conch shell and get everyone together. <laughs> And so what he does first is he needs to make sure that they have a proper defense for these wagons because the wagons are the priority. He's going to concentrate his army in position and set up a defensive line. So he is going to evacuate his supplies and wounded first. Those are the priority. Once the wagons and ambulances get moving, then the infantry is going to go. That's how it's going to go. So the infantry is going to be the last guys out of town. To organize these 10 divisional hospitals, this mess that it must have been, it's going to fall under the direction of a guy named Major Hunter McGuire. Now, he is the medical director of the um, of the army. He's going to organize the movements of these wounded from all these hospitals. What he's going to basically do is he's going to come up with a way to organize them and arrange them to move down that Mummersburg Road or by Oak Hill over there and get to Hare's Ridge and await orders there. So it's kind of like a staging point, mm-hmm. right? That's yeah. that's where they're going to go. Lee well, is going to then order all three of his corps. And he wants them to fall back to Seminary Ridge and set up that defensive line and build breastworks because he, he's going to do this because he wants to protect him he's going to basically create that screen so if you know gettysburg it's going to range down from where the lutheran seminary is yep and it's going to go a straight line right down the ridge all the way to where the rose farm is and he's going to set up yule's core on the on the far rebel left in the seminary and you know the picture of those captives the yep. three gettysburg the breastworks behind them yep that breastwork was built during this period mm-hmm. This was built during the exodus that from um, from Rhodes' guys. So, Ewell's going to be on that far left. Hill's going to be kind of in the middle to, to Ewell's right, I guess it would be. And Longstreet going to be on, on Hill's right. He's going to be on that far right flank and he's going to refuse the line. So, it's a good, solid defensive point. They're all going to be entrenched. It's going to be a situation where it's going to cover both the Fairfield and the Chambersburg roads, um, as well as ultimately those two passes I mentioned before. It, um, That'll go through the Monterey Pass and Cashtown Pass. So that's that's kind of the setup of how he's going to do it as this whole thing goes.
0: But then he needs somebody to help bring up. I think it's the rear guard, right? And that's where Emboden well, comes in.
1: Well, they're gonna we'll talk about that. Emboden's we, we, going to be coming down the road. They're going to the What they're going to do is, yes, he's going to do that. So real real quick, before we do that, we let's just explain the passes. And because people who've been there know it, but they yeah. haven't been, they you don't know to talk about. They build gaps in the mountain range. To get through the mountains, yep. so you have to climb all the way over. Cashtown Pass, you get to be the Chambersburg Pike. It's a slow kind of gradual climb, and the road at the time on Chambersburg Pike was was a pretty moderate. Or was that macadamized?
0: Yep. Am I saying that right? Yep. Macadamized.
1: So, yep. It, so it was like that. So it was a pretty good shape. Now Monterey Pass is the one at the end of Fairfield Road. Now that's a steeper climb. It ain't macadamized. It's crap. It's like every road in my neighborhood with potholes in it. So that's going to be the tougher one. So what Lee's going to do, he's going to take his supply wagons and ambulances, and they're going to be in front, right? And they're going to be screened by the infantry to protect at all costs, because this is an all-cost situation. Now, Longstreet and Lee's wagons are going to go down the Chambersburg Pike to the Cash Town Pass, along with Jeb Stewart's wagons. So this is your supplies and ambulances for Longstreet, Hill, and Jeb Stewart. Guarding them is a guy you just mentioned, John Imboden. Yep. In his job, he had one job, Mary, is to protect these wagons at all costs.
0: Very early hours of July the 4th that he calls on Imboden to come see him. And Imboden said that when he met with Lee, he said the moon, when it appeared through the growing cloud, shone full upon his massive features and revealed an expression of sadness that I had never seen before upon his face. So this is just hours after Pickett's charge has occurred. And Lee says to him, We must now return to Virginia as many of our poor wounded as possible must be taken home. I have sent for you because your men and horses are fresh and in good condition to guard and conduct our train back to Virginia. The duty will be arduous, responsible, and dangerous for I'm afraid that you will be harassed by the enemy's cavalry. And the reason that Lee has asked him to do this is because Imboden has not really been involved in the battle of Gettysburg. So he's got fresh troops. He's the perfect guy for this. So a little bit about Imboden. He's an interesting figure that doesn't get studied a lot. He is not at all a fucking diva like Jeb. At all, Jeb actually does Ooh. not like Emboden very much. And that's e- when we got the e- exactly. Well, you were waiting for it. It's been a while. Uh-huh. Wow, we made it fifteen minutes without me dropping an f bomb. I think that's pretty good. That's a record. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, so Anyways. so so John D. Emboden, he's forty years old. Father was a veteran of the War of eighteen twelve. He's from Staunton, Virginia. He's a Freemason, member of the Staunton Masonic Lodge number thirteen AFAM. Am I getting that right? Look at me go. Um, He's a slave owner, graduated oh. of Washington Col- College. He's a lawyer. Right after Virginia seceded, he raised the Stoughton artillery and he took the guns to Harper's Ferry soon after that. As I said, he doesn't, he's not really involved too much in the Battle of Gettysburg at all. During the battle, he and his men stayed in the rear and guarded the ammunition and supply trains in Chambersburg. Um, and his command is considered to be independent. So he doesn't take orders from Jeb. He's taking orders directly from from General Lee. As I said, he's not well liked by Jeb. And Lee's not a huge fan of his either. But I think after this, he's probably going to get enough cred with Lee. Because in Bowdoin, this is where he shines. And again, he doesn't get talked about a lot. I think he's like the Buford of the Confederate Army. He's very much just get it done. I don't need a feather in my hat kind of thing like that diva Jeb does. Oh.
1: <laughs> well, it's interesting about Emboden, in though, right? You mentioned before, not a West Point guy, you mentioned Washington College, which is yeah. now Washington and Lee University, ironically. So he became was a lawyer, but before he was a lawyer, he was a teacher at a Virginia school for the deaf and the blind. Yeah. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning that was. At the battle of bull run, he lost his hearing in his left ear from a percussion. So he was deaf in his left ear. I always thought that was strange. He he was half deaf after teaching in a blind and deaf school. So there you go. But he was certainly somebody who um was the right guy, history will prove at the job, right? So yeah. We mentioned before those wagons, Lee and Hills and Stewart's wagons are going on the Chambersburg Pike. Now, Ewell's wagons, okay, are going to go down the Fairfield Road and they're going to go through that Monterey Pass, that crappy way, mm-hmm. right through Hagerstown, yeah. Maryland. We're going to talk a lot about Hagerstown later. Now, both of these roads ultimately going to end up going to a place called Williamsport, Maryland, which is right on the Potomac. The goal was we'll meet you there and then we're we'll going to cross, right? That's how it was going to go. They're going to cross at a place called Falling Waters and that's exactly where it's going to be. We mentioned in, in Bowden is going to be the guy who's going to take over, Is going to run that side. The other yeah. guy I was going to take over for Yule's is guy named John A. Harmon. Mm-hmm. Now, he is Yule's chief quartermaster. So I don't know how the heck he picked this Ewell guy. Go, right?
0: Ewell, did you know the story of what Yule said to him? Where he's oh, yeah. like, oh, okay. you better get so, the so, fucking to, trains across. Yeah,
1: so <laughs> It's going to be a mess. So to your point, Yule has no patience for Harmon, which, which doesn't understand why he would have picked him. So he puts his finger in his face, right? Yep. He just puts it in his face. And he says, "Take! I need you to get these trains across the Potomac, or I never want to see your face in this army again. Now, I know you get that at work all the time, okay? But I can't imagine that being very motivating. I was just going to say, maybe I shouldn't do that to the kids at the DQ. (laughs) You know, but he is going to, so this John A. Harmon guy is going to be in charge of basically getting 40 miles stretched out worth of wagons safely to the destination. Now, he, it's again, it goes to show how important these supplies yeah, the are. Supplies. Okay. Yeah. It just goes to show, again, the primary goal of the campaign. Now, Harmon, speaking of him, he's born in Waynesboro, Virginia, 1824. He had four brothers fight for the Confederacy. He was a newspaper editor, like so many of these people we talk about are in Staunton, Virginia. Stanton, I guess is it's called. He's very pro secession. His family was slave owners. The whole deal. So he's you know typical guard variety Confederate guy. So yep. Hill's Corps, the actual troops, now right. So you have you know where the supplies are going to be going now. So you got Yule going down Fairfield. Mm-hmm. You got Hill Longstreet and Stewart going down the other one, right? Yep. With Embolden covering Chambersburg Pike and Harmon covering Fairfield. Mm-hmm. So that's the supplies. Now on the where it gets confusing is the troops. So not to be confused with Hill's wagons. Hill's Corps, the actual dudes, okay, they're going to follow Yule's wagon ambulance up that Fairfield Road. So the the infantry is going to go up the Fairfield Road. That's going to be their protection. So all three Corps, they're going to be on that defensive line, and they're all going to take turns leaving that line when it's their turn to leave the line. They're all in Seminary Ridge, and and they're going to go Fairfield Road. Now Yule's Corps, the actual Corps, they're going to go last. They're going to be the screeners. So they're going to protect Longstreet and Hill as they move towards Fairfield Road. Once they're safely in line, so once the first one's in line, then the next one goes. Then finally, when the second ones goes, then Ewell's going to go. That's how it's going to go. Once they get moving, it'll be artillery as well. They're all going to follow Ewell's wagons and ambulances up over that road towards Monterey Pass through Hagerstown and eventually through Williamsport. Longstreet and Hill's wagons and the ambulances, they're going to follow them that Chambersburg Pike to Cashtown Pass and then through Williamsport. So that's how it's all going to go is Bowden's going to guard them. Now, problems right off the bat that you can't control for Lee, right? For one, those pontoon boats he set up at Falling Water, is yep. During the campaign, the feds got him and screwed they him. They destroyed, them. so they're gone. Right? They destroyed him. He doesn't know this yet. He'll find out. But he, as of right now, he thinks the car is still running, and he's going to go run out to and make a getaway. <laughs> but it's, okay, so it doesn't work. The other thing that that's going to be an issue is going to be the weather. Now, rain is going to be the great equalizer in this because it's going to be torrential. It's going to rain just about every day that sucks so just when you think it can't get freaking worse right yeah it, you it, not only you're stuck in that oh all that july 4th traffic oh, even gettysburg must have brutal <laughs> too i mean you can't imagine so july 5th it all kind of gets going here okay yeah. so the injured are going to get placed on those wagons for that trip this includes guys like dorsey pender john bell hood Wade Hampton, guys who got hurt at the battle, along with nine thousand total that are going to need to be transported. Now, Emboden's going to organize the wagons on the like Chambersburg Pike, and it's going to extend. When it's extended, just the wagons is going to extend all the way from Cashtown to Hare's Ridge. Now, you know how long that is. Yep,
0: Emboden's okay. train alone it, it it spans seventeen miles.
1: Right. That's up. that's how long Cashtown to Hairs Ridge. Anyway, exactly. um, so so <laughs> so so. so <laughs> So you have you have Longstreet, Hills, and Stuart's wagons. They're going to have cavalry with them to screen them, so they're not going to be completely on their own. But you know, in Bowen's obviously a cavalry guy. He's also going to have, besides his own, he's going to have 20 artillery pieces from Hill, Longstreet, and Stuart's artillery to protect the convoy as well. As well as some cavalry support from guys like Fitzhugh Lee and Lawrence Baker, so they're going to have he's going to have some people with them, mm-hmm. and their job is going to basically protect the backs and protect the flanks as yeah. they go, because yeah. the infantry is going on the other side. That's how it's going to go. Seventeen miles from Cashtown to Harris Ridge, Mary. <laughs> um, <Fucker>. So. <laughs> Harmon, he's organizing all of Ewell's wagons, right? He's got his wagons moving as well. He's also got like 15,000 head of cattle, 15,000 head of sheep. He's got all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So you can imagine this train wreck going. He has his cavalry support as well from Grumble Jones and Beverly Robertson. That's that's pretty much what he's going to have with him on his, okay? So 2 o'clock on the 5th of, Ju- of July, Ewell's reserve trains are going to start moving. Mm-hmm. And they're going to get moving pretty well. And they're going to get to Fairfield pretty quickly, actually. To Fairfield, Rhodes' trains are going to follow them, followed by Early's uh, Early's trains, and then Allegheny Johnson's train. So by four o'clock, they're getting there, but the rain is really starting to come down. Yeah. So it's really, really pouring. Ewell's length of his trains from beginning to end is forty miles crazy Bloody, that's like cash town of just like three times
0: okay you doing that anyway
1: <laughs> thanks. so anyway in has got a task he has to he he knows he has to get there quickly and he doesn't have a lot of experience no one has experience doing this right you know his trains in now was speaking of carry the lion's share of the injured most yep. of the injured were with him on on that road he's got and nine
0: thousand injured with him
1: Nine thousand, right? right yep. and so the experience was so bad for these guys i mean you're not talking about a you know, 2021 Honda CRV Mary you're t- you're talking about a wooden wagon with no shocks no padding bumbling up this row with holes in it it's potholes in the rain going up about one mile an hour this day of the misery right well there was one guy Maybe... that
0: apparently had to have his leg slung over the side because that was the only way he felt comfortable so his that's injured... how I that's how I yeah, see it his too. injured leg was like whatever and then he had his other leg slung over the side to kind of hold himself in place yeah. as they traveled like
1: a lot of these guys were, were begging to be let out of the carriages yeah. they couldn't
0: take it anymore
1: so um, the, You know, they had to just fend for themselves and just say, you know what the hell with it. I'll deal with the Federals. I'll deal with this. Or they would just die on the side of the road. Now, our friend Bill, he has a house along this path. And his house was one of the houses that a lot of the Confederates would have gone into who jumped off the wagons. And on his stairs, he has a civil war house. On his stairs, you can see the bloodstains of the yeah. soldiers who are waiting on these stairs. And it's just its creepy. It just, it just is. Mm-hmm. But um, some cried. There was some soldiers who cried, Oh, God, why can't I just die? Uh, Another said, For God's sake, stop for just one minute. Take me and leave me to die on the roadside. Soldiers later reported that endless moaning, crying, begging for death. One wagon driver, I have a quote from him, so he wrote, we must move on. The storm continued, and the darkness and rain was appalling. All the wounded were utterly helpless in that vast procession of misery. I realized more in these days, more of the horrors of war than I had in the previous two years combined. Yeah, and right? Bowden says so that, can, right? And you can just say that. Here's a staff reset. I don't think it was him I but it was someone in his staff. When you look at this, this long convoy, so in Bowden and Harmon's combined trains is about 60 miles. I think it was yep. 57 miles. That's how long it was. Now, just think of that traffic you know no thanks on the other side of the coin we got to talk about George Meade I was just going to say George, we got to okay.
0: talk about the situation that the federals are in right now, which... now right I
1: don't want to talk about me but real quick Meade's planning to attack Lee's retreat okay which was weird cuz I had heard he didn't do anything
0: Oh we well, will we'll talk
1: about it. I guess we'll talk about that so so that's the plan for, you know, we'll talk about the Confederates. Yeah. So so Meade's got some stuff up his sleeves as
0: well. Yeah, he does. So he, he's in kind of the same position as Lee. Like he's lost Corps and division commanders as well. Like Reynolds has been killed on July the 1st and he's been replaced with John Newton. And Hancock, commander of the 2nd Corps, was wounded. He's been replaced with General William Hayes. Daniel Butterfield, Meade's chief of staff, was wounded on July the 3rd. And he's going to be replaced by Andrew Humphreys. And then General William H. French replaces Dan Sickles of the 3rd Corps. So he's going through some of the same... Stuff as well that that Lee is going through. He holds a council of war, asking his remaining corps commanders, and this is going to be the second one that he holds uh, during during the Gettysburg campaign, and or since the battle, I guess he held the one on the night of July the second, and then this is going to be the second one that he holds. And he asked if they should remain in Gettysburg. And they said, yes, we should remain in Gettysburg until we figure out what the fuck Lee is going to get up to. They also agree that it needs to be the cavalry that start going out to figure that out. General Warren is also going to take a division from Sedgwick from the Sixth Corps and kind of just look at what the Confederates are doing and determine what Lee is up to. The other thing that Meade does is just in case he needs to attack, he organizes his army into three wings. The 1st, 3rd, and 6th Corps are going to be commanded by Sedgwick. Slocum is going to take on the 2nd and the 12th Corps. My boy O.O. Howard is going to take on the 5th and the 11th Corps. So he's got his three wings in case they need to attack. And then so he's going to send the cavalry out to strike the enemy's rear and lines of communication and he just tells Pleasanton harass and annoy him as much as possible in this retreat now eventually he does get word via the signal stations on the round tops that oh shit there's a whole bunch of wagons moving and we think he's leaving. Meade at this time also releases General Orders number 68, in which he says, the commanding general, in behalf of your country, thanks the Army of the Potomac for the glorious result of the recent operations. Our task is not yet accomplished, and the commanding general looks to the army for greater efforts to drive from our soil every vestige of presence of the invader. Uh, Lincoln wants Lee destroyed, but Lincoln also does not want Lee to be in Pennsylvania anymore either. So Meade's got a huge task before him. But the one thing that he's going to do, like Meade has been accused of not doing anything in this. And I think that's, I think we're going to see that that's not true. The other thing he does too, is I think this is a great a sign of a really good leader. He's always consulting his commanders as to what they're up to because they know how their men are feeling, right? They know what they've been through. meade has been through hell, just like Lee has.
1: He has, and he has a pretty good plan. He comes up with. So he mentioned before about those guys up around top. They see the wagons, and he's going to he's going to install install his cavalry to see what's up. So he's going to send um the second cavalry under John Irvin Gregg, who's the cousin of Dave McMurtry Gregg, right? DMG,
0: yeah.
1: run DMG, <laughs> and he tells him to go to that rebel left and just you know try and pick off any wagons that go to Cashdown Pike. Just whatever. He's going to order Judson, Kilpatrick, the third cavalry division guy, and he's going to go towards Monterey Pass. And we'll talk more about that here in a while. Meade didn't have a lot of info, but he did know that if any troops were going down that Fairfield Road, they were going to have to go through Monterey Pass, because there was no other way to go. I mean, that was yeah. it. So he had a good idea of where he was probably going to be headed to. So he wants Kilpatrick to hit those trains, but to your point, he wants him to report and see what the hell he's, he's up to, right? John Buford... He's sitting there with his mustache back in Westminster <laughs> at the head, supply headquarters. He's in charge of the first cavalry division. Who knows if people are sighing or not? I guess we'll find out. He's resting and refi- <laughs> he's resting and refitting his troops. Is what and his horses? What he's doing? He gets a message from Meade to get up and leave ASAP. I think he said ASAFP. I think he actually yeah, said that. Sounds more like right Meade. for me to Frederick, Maryland. That's where he wants to go. He wants to go through Turner Pass and strike Lee's wagons in that Cumberland Valley. So he he goes, look, I don't know where they're going, but I know where they're going to the Monterey Pass. So I, we we have to get there. So all three divisions by the fourth, by July fourth, those cavalry divisions start moving to their respective targets. And again, it dispels that myth that Meade was sitting on his ass not doing yeah. anything. Now you mentioned before. They were. They didn't know what the intentions were. They didn't know if he was redeploying or retreating. So he had to find out, which is why the cavalry was the most important one to go.
0: Meade's fear is that Lee is going to get into the mountains and totally fortify himself in there. That's Great. his greatest we'll find, we'll fear.
1: We'll hear, we'll hear about that in a little while, and that's exactly what he was afraid of. They were also slow by that rain. The rain was a, was a big deal. Now, Lee, once his wagons got going with him, Bowen and Harmon, infantry troops would start to follow. So I mentioned before, Hill's Corps, who was completely beaten up, they're going to be the first to go. So, they're going to start following out down that Fairfield Road. Longstreet's core, they're going to follow them. The thing is, they have to wait, right? So, they're sitting in the woods, freezing in the cold rain at night, wondering if they're going to get attacked.
0: By the Rose, and they Rose have clown. To,
1: By the Well, exactly. That I was going to say that. I'm scared <laughs> to death. I wouldn't do it. I just give, give up. So... They're wondering with the is. They have no shelter, and they're there pretty much all night. They finally get going. Then finally, uh, Yule is going to be the one who's going to go. Yule's going to have a battle line to protect Longstreet as they go. And then finally, Yule's going to get going as well. Is also thinking about Monterey Pass because I think he's thinking, well, if they saw me going, they know I'm going to Monterey Pass. So I'm going to need to put some cavalry up there to protect these guys. Just have weight wait. East and west of Monterey Pass, he's going to put command under a guy named George M. Emack. He's from Company B of Maryland, right? He's only 20 years old, Mary. It's 20, yeah. right? He's in charge of protecting them. And they're also going to give him one single artillery piece, one yeah. gun, and they're going to place it at the Monterey Hotel, a fine resort, Mary, that neither you or I would be allowed in, by the way,
0: <laughs> just so you know. Emac's also quite the colorful career in the Civil War, even though he's only 20 years old. He actually um, was a kind of undercover officer in Libby Prison where he would, um, and get he gathered intelligence as well. So he was the one that had to interrogate the Union soldiers. And he would have been 17, 18 years old when he started doing that.
1: He's from Maryland. He's from Maryland. He's from Belleville. In 1861, he's accused of being a Confederate spy, Confederate Mm -hmm. sympathizer. So he gets arrested. So you know how he gets out? He knifes the guard and he takes off in escapes of Virginia. So that, that's the type of guy he was. So probably the best guy to have him in charge anyway. So Kilpatrick's cavalry comes bumbling along with 4,300 guys and three battalions of horse artillery. And they're going right for that Monterey Pass. Up front is George Custer, his Michigan Brigade, right where we expect him to be. They're stumbling along, and they don't know where they're going. They come across a 12-year-old girl on the side of the road. Her name is Hattie Zeilinger. And Where were her parents? She lives near, well, who knows? I don't know what the story was. But there, she lives nearby. And so they bump into her and they just, you know, what's going on? They ask her, say, hey, by any chance, have you seen any rebels around here? You see anybody, you know? And she goes, yeah, you know, just up on that hill up there, there's a, there's a bunch of troops on the top of the hill. And they got a cannon. And behind those cannon is a whole bunch of wagons. Custer was like, well, okay <laughs> And they said, um, Jackpot. any chance you any chance you can maybe show us where they are? And she goes, Yeah, sure, one up. So they pull her up on the horse. And she's riding, leading Kilpatrick's division, is being run by a 12-year-old girl yeah. at this moment. They drop her off somewhere along the way. Who the hell knows? You know, they get about a quarter mile ahead. They're almost there. It's dark, it's pouring rain. When Emacs guys see them and they have that one gun and they start firing with that single gun. Yeah. Kilpatrick, his guys are going to dismount and they're going to advance towards Emacs guns in his position. Emacs initially fall back at the intersection of the Emmitsburg and Waynesburg Turnpike. But he and puts up
0: quite a fight considering he, he's he does. outnumbered he, to the point where, uh, you know, Custer and Kilpatrick, they're like, oh my God, we're we're outnumbered. And keep in mind that they are fighting at night in a rainstorm. Mm-hmm. There's thunder and lightning happening as well as custer is probably making charge after charge at these guys well he's
1: smart kilpatrick he's says, well okay we, we know there's more of them let's not go crazy here kilpatrick falls back himself to that monterey hotel and they set up a little temporary little headquarters and he has custer's fifth and sixth michigan at this point regathered they go let's go get this guy again Yep. They're going to advance on EMAC, right? Now, by now, EMAC's been reinforced by Grumble Jones and Beverly Robertson. Yep. Grumble Jones is like, we got to keep these frigging wagons going at all costs. We can't stop the world to fight these guys. Keep them going, but you guys are going to have to fight them. And this mm-hmm. is going to be the Battle of Monterey Pass, So, which is a great place to visit. Mm-hmm. If you've been to Gettysburg, you haven't been to Monterey Pass, shame on you, because it is a fantastic little place to visit. There's going to be 10,000 soldiers are going to fight in this little mini battle. It is the second largest battle in the Civil War, in the state of Pennsylvania, you know yeah. what the first one
0: is? Gettysburg.
1: I'm just making sure you're paying attention. Okay, so Monterey Pass, Monterey Pass is second. Okay, just don't um, ask me
0: any math questions.
1: I'll try not to. I'll try not to. So Custer is gonna have is gonna have some artillery fire. He's gonna start firing on those wagons as they're going. Just picture the wagons going. And they're shooting cannons it's like a video game, like duck hunt. Boom, yep. boom, boom. <laughs> right, and that's kind of how it was. Right. Custer almost so, gets
0: captured at this battle too because he gets he a little does. bit
1: overzealous and falls yeah. off his horse. He does. Custer's gonna send in that first West Virginia cavalry and that that first Ohio. Um, they're gonna send them in. Kind of alluded to it a minute ago. They're going to draw their sabers, and they're going to charge Emac's guys on horseback. And there's stories of while they were charging, those flashes of lightning going on, glistening off the sabers, and adding some romanticism into the whole battle. I can only imagine how that was, how true it is or not, but it sounds cool. I'm sure that didn't go to
0: Custer's head afterwards. No, of course not.
1: Emac himself is going to be injured. He's going to be hit upside the head many times with the saber, but he survives, but he's going to to get hit. Custer does finally break his line, but to your point, they hold their own for a while. Mm -hmm. Soon Kilpatrick is going to be riding up and down the whole line of the Wagons torturing them, he's going to capture 250 wagons and 1300 prisoners, mostly those yep. injured dudes who were in the wagons. It's basically,
0: nine um, miles worth of wagons that he captures. Yeah.
1: They also bagged Julius Daniels' payroll, yeah, from the quartermaster. They got all of his money now. Kilpatrick, at this point, I mean, you could have, you know, you Kilpatrick, he's probably so excited. But he knows he's like, all right, I know that Monterey Pass is the only way to get through here. And I also know there's like 50,000 infantry coming. So I probably don't want to stick around here. He takes off for a little while because he knows he knows he can't stay. On the other side of the coin is Bowdoin again. Now he's bumbling and stumbling down the Cumberland Valley. He's gonna turn south in that Cumberland turnpike. So by morning of the 5th, he arrives just near a place called Green Castle, Maryland. He will be hit and attacked by a guy named Captain Ulrich. Dalgren, which we'll yeah. talk a lot about later on. He didn't have many guys, and can kind of push him back pretty, pretty easily. So by late afternoon, Imboden's wagons are already nearing Williamsport, Maryland, the meeting site. So they're moving along pretty quickly. Again, they have those better roads. His wagon train stretched like 30, 30 miles long. Now, as he approaches... He's going to get to a place called Cunningham's Crossroads, and he's going to be attacked again.
0: It's Mm -hmm. being led by, so Abram Jones is here. Mr. Jones, Mm -hmm. and me. The result of Cunningham's Crossroads is they're going to capture 134 wagons, 600 horses and mules, and 645 prisoners. And Stuart's so angry about it that he calls um, a court of inquiry afterwards into this. Yeah, they have
1: a tough time against Jones as first New York cavalry in that 12th PA and they're going like, to lose a lot. It's very similar to the one that Kilpatrick Patrick. Yeah, they're they're going up against
0: uh, Colonel Lewis B Pierce, the debris of Winchester is what mm-hmm. he's re- he's referred to this Union guy that's going up against them. And he's been operating in isolation trying to figure out how to get back to the AOP and all of a sudden he he gets involved in uh, the Battle of Cunningham's Crossroads.
1: Mm-hmm. No, in Bowden, it will push them back again. Yep. He's going to he's going to drive them back and uh, he's going to continue, he's going to start to arrive into Williamsport. Over on the other side, Harmon's wagons, and they're 40 miles long now, they begin to arrive in Williamsport as well. It's still pouring out. Now keep that weather going the whole time. It's always raining. Like he is here all the time now. Just It's always raining. The wagons are basically going to be gathered and parked in a big field along the Potomac. They're just going to sit there for a mm. while. They start to cross slowly because they realize the pontoons are gone. And there's going to be a, a guy who owns a ferry company named Robert Lemon. Who is going to slowly ferry them across, but it takes forever with ropes and stuff, and it's just stupid. Well, they it's not going to work. Take,
0: like the boats out of the CNO canal in right. order to do it.
1: It's just taking forever. And ends so up there's more and more wagons coming, and for the next 50 hours, wagons are going to be arriving at Williamsport. Mm-hmm. Okay, 50 hours. And they all waited their turn in this horrific traffic jam. So <laughs> by the afternoon on uh, 7 5 rather, uh, in Bowden's trains, they start to arrive too, so you can see where this is going. There gonna be five thousand wagons parked along the Potomac, sitting there waiting. Okay, by the end of seven five, it's gonna be filled with horses and cattle, the remains of a Rosewood's clown, sheep, <laughs> everything they they had. It just imagine it's like the first SEC tailgate, probably. There's probably Leonard <laughs> Skinner blasting on the radio. These all guys sitting around, but all these wagons are sitting there parked in this big gigantic parking lot. It must have been a hell of a sight. By the way, and they're all gridlocked because those pontoons that fall in our waters were no longer there. So it was this just picture Lee, he's not there yet, but picture you're so close, but yet so far, right? You mm-hmm. can see Virginia across the river of all the supplies and you can't get them across. No. So, real quick, Williamsport, Maryland, it's just an interesting little town if you've ever been there. According to the 1863 census, which I looked up today, Mary. There was only 1,016 residents at the time of the battle. There was one bank and there was three hotels, okay? It was a town that was mixed emotions and sympathies towards the Confederacy or Union. So it was kind of a 50-50 town. And the town quickly filled with injured soldiers and Union prisoners of war. Just like Gettysburg, most of the towns were converted into hospitals. Most of the the buildings were were used to house different people. And some quotes real quick, Claiborne, Wayland, from the 28th Virginia wrote, little or no sympathy is to be had by the citizens of the town. So right off the bat, he's like, we, don't, we got no love here. Sergeant Benjamin Johnson, 105th Pennsylvania. After being captured, this is a northern guy. After being captured in Gettysburg, the citizens of Williamsport took good care of us for the next three days. So I'm like, okay, well, we're caught, but these guys are taking care of us. A guy named Alonzo Clapp, 122nd New York. He writes, the worst looking place I ever saw. The streets have been used as a barnyard. Cattle have been killed in the streets. Last one, Watkins-Kerns, 27th Virginia. Williamsport is a very pretty town. I saw two very pretty girls here. You know? <laughs> But so you can see the town is, it's kind of mixed, right? They don't they don't particularly like the Rebs, yeah. but it's, they're dealing with it. So, in Bowdoin, we mentioned, he needs to protect Williamsport. Now it's all the wagons that are in there are sitting docks, right? So, they're vulnerable to attack. He's going to protect the town from the east. That's where he figures attacks are going to come. So, he just dismounts cavalry, and they're going to defend the line. Um, they're going to have two infantry uh, regiments that are going to be guarding there as well, the 31st and 58th Virginia, along with William Pegram. So, William Pegram's there, mm-hmm. Mary, and we'll talk about him, too. Come Company F of the 2nd Virginia. He plus has the 54th North, North Carolina and they've been sent up in Richmond too. So they're getting support as well. The injured soldiers are forced to take up arms yep. in a lot of cases because they have to do it because they know that defending the supply wagons was life and death for Lee and they're sitting there they're sitting ducks. And again, that's their primary goal.
0: Just to go back to what the AOP is up to on July the 6th, they start moving away from Gettysburg. So the Sixth Corps has been falling at a safe distance since the 4th kind of screening what's going on and obviously we know that Buford or Kilpatrick have been involved in a few battles by this point, you know, with Bowdoin and, and some of the other Confederates. Meade is not just waiting idly by. I think he's waiting to receive the right intelligence because he doesn't want to get going somewhere and somehow stretch himself too thin and not be able to do mm-hmm. battle against Lee.
1: Finishing the cavalry real quick. So Buford, we got to talk about Buford real quick. So he's sitting in Frederick, Maryland. He's, he's with Wesley Merritt, his cavalry reserves. Buford's going to hear from a local that a large wagon train is moving through Hague his town towards Williamsport, and that it's completely unguarded. He's going to come some of a true, not completely, but that's what he hears. So Buford is like, well, he decides he's going to attack the next morning on July 6th, so July 6th, early morning, Buford's going to start moving towards Turner Pass down that national road, where he's going to meet up with Kilpatrick's Calvary later that day near um, Boonesboro, Maryland. Now, Kilpatrick must have been gleefully explaining how wonderful he did a Monterey Pass. He had <laughs> done it recently, right? Buford said, tells him the situation. He goes, here, here's what I heard. I, I, we heard this wagon's undefended moving up you know, towards, um, towards Hagerstown. They did a big high five and said, let's get him. Kilpatrick's going to take that national road towards Funkstown. Oh, Funkstown. He's going to go to Hagerstown, reverse, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, he's going to hit the trains in Hagerstown. That's what Kilpatrick's going to do. Buford's going to go through Williamsport-Boonesboro Road to Williamsport and hit the wagon sitting there. You're going to have Kilpatrick trying to hit the moving target, and you're going to have Buford going and hit the sitting ducks. That's how they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. So, of course, things never work out the way you think it's going to because the, the Rebs are going to see Kilpatrick pretty quickly as he approaches Bunky Town. Bunkstown, yep. right? Yeah. He's going to quickly try to build, Rebs are going to quickly try to build defenses, try to stop them in Hagerstown along that South Potomac Street, that main drag through town in a place called the St. John's Lutheran Church. Now, they'll be fighting all the way into the town mid afternoon. They're going to get near a place called Hagerstown Mills. Every step along the way, Kilpatrick is going to have more and more fire to deal with. So he's kind of thinking, okay, well, we got a tough time. So The guy who is going to be leading is going to be a guy named Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren. We talked about him a few minutes ago. He's only 21, so he's young, too. He asked Kilpatrick if he can lead the charge up Potomac Street, which will lead to the Battle of Hagerstown on the yeah. 6th of July. He'll have the 18th Pennsylvania Cavalry, the 1st West Virginia, they're going to all move forward, led by Dahlgren, straight up at the rebs, straight at him. Now, aggressive you know, guy, this Dahlgren, mm-hmm. Mary. He's gonna rifle fire is gonna explode. is gonna overwhelm the rebs immediately. They're gonna go right at him and they're gonna go right through the town. Right, they're gonna come from the south, going north, right up the main drag. They're gonna blow right by the 9th and 10th Virginia Cavalry. Around now, the rebs are going to get lucky or they're going to get help. This is when Beverly Robertson's cavalry from North Carolina is going to arrive, and they're going to be almost right in the nick of time. So they're going to be arriving from the north and they're going to support those 9th and 10th cavalry. So you've got kind of ghosts going in different directions heading into yep. each other. It's going to lead to a huge fight in the center of town. There's going to be cavalry guys slashing each other in the town square. The rebs get pushed back again by Dahlgren. They're going to fall back to a place called Church Street, which is where the rebs are going to really tighten their defenses here. They're going to get artillery support east of the town. They're going to start firing on the Union positions in town. So the tide is going to start to turn by four o'clock at Hagerstown, Mary. So the Rebs are going to get infantry support from uh, none other than Alfred Iverson, Mary, yep. whose, aunt, whose antifreeze hangover from Gettysburg apparently <laughs> has so subsided. up, has he? So he he is there. So he's going to come rumbling and stumbling down that North Potomac Street right at Dahlgren, and it's going to give Rebs a clear advantage. Infantry versus cavalry is never never a winning situation for the cavalry. They're going to fill in the gaps on Church Street, and they're going to fire into that dismounted Union cavalry, and they're going to march right in battle formation. They're going to go right at them. Dahlgren's going to fall back. He's going to get shot in the leg. He's going to ultimately lose his leg, right below the knee. That's going to be you know it's going it's going to be a bad deal. And Dahlgren. Real quick, I need to take a diversion and talk Mm -hmm. a quick story about Dahlgren. Okay. Because this is a cool one, okay? So Dahlgren, he's going to get killed the next year at the Battle of Wilkerton in March of 1864. Now, what's interesting what happens is, okay, so he gets killed. 13-year-old kid is rifling through his body. And allegedly, he finds plans... On his person, where he intended to go to Bell Isle Prison, free the prisoners, give them gasoline so they can burn down Richmond. That's what the plan's oh supposed my to God, say. That's okay. Crazy. So the rebs get pissed, and the story gets published in the Richmond newspaper after they buried him on the field. They bury him in the field and they publish a story. So the locals, the paper comes out, they're sitting at the Dunkin' Donuts for their coffee <laughs> reading the story. You know what they do? They dig him up because oh they're God. pissed. They dig up Dahlgren, and they place his body on display at the railroad station in Richmond for all to see. Remember how we said before he got shot and lost his leg at Hagerstown? He had a wooden leg. They took his wooden leg off and they put it on display in a store window in Richmond. Ew. Okay, so so, of course the North's getting wind of this (laughs) and they're pissed, right? So they're pissed off. Now Meade is like, okay, here's the deal. We did not send him with these plans. He had no plans because he writes Lee because this is bad. He's like, no, we're going to free prisoners in John Brown, your town here. We're going to do that. (laughs) So he sends a message to Lee and says, This is, it's all faked and not, it was a complete rumor. We don't know where that note is, but that was not from us. This story is one of the stories John Wilkes Booth said pissed him off about the north was this story so just think a couple of years what happened down the road yep. this is one of the stories he mentioned that infuriated him against the north wow I don't know if, you know so the funny part about it was the plans they had before they pulled off his body was the confederates had they turned them over to stanton here's the so plan we all okay? know where they are now nope you know why because they disappeared exactly They'd of course they did there. because stanton <laughs> had
0: them a lot of <laughs> stuff <never> been, disappears <laughs> they... <laughs> with fucking stanton
1: <laughs> so the plans have never been seen since so that, that's the Dalrin story. So it was, he had a tough he had a tough run. But yeah, but that's 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 what happens. So oh maybe, my god. <laughs> it's <laughs> always,
0: it always fucking Stanton.
1: Meanwhile, the rebel infantry is gonna start marching from Gettysburg at this point. They're going to be on different roads of the march. So I think these days are going by. It's a couple of days later, they're finally going, because that's how long the, the wagon trains are and how long it's going to go. At the end of the line is John Brown Gordon. He's going to be the caboose on the infantry train. He's going to have some artillery with him as well. And they'll be screened by the 35th Virginia Cavalry by a guy named Elijah White, who's protecting his flanks. Now, on his for his point, his infantry is going to start moving, too, the day before. And they're going to start to move his infantry as well. So Cedric Sixth Corps, to your point, is told to follow Lee's rear and just see what's going on. You know, I'm not sure if he um, looked at his rear and waved. Who knows? But that's the <laughs> way it was. He's told not to attack. He's just to see what, see what these guys are doing and see what's up. So many of Meade's staff, okay, are fearing, to what we, we said earlier, that Lee is going to go into South Mountain and set up that Gibraltar defense. That was Meade's fear, too. That was their big fear. What they were going to do was they were going to be tricked into chasing them to the mountains, and they're going to get pounded in the mountains. Meade thinks that Lee is retreating. He says, you know what? I think he's going. I don't think he's redeploying. I think he is going. So he's going to send his corps. he's going to order his court to Fredericksburg and Middletown as soon as possible through the gaps in the South Mountain, Foxes, Turners, and Cramptons, we talked about that last time, yeah. or a few uh, episodes, because he wants to get lead, like you said, before he gets across that Potomac. So Cedric's going to be on Lee's butt, and the Rebs are going to stop occasionally to shoot and move, but they're going to kind of keep going they're trying to bait Cedric into a fight. Yeah. And Cedric is like, he's told don't fight. So he's not going to do it. And so he's smart. And so they go, oh, okay, well, I guess we're going to keep going. Yule's core is going to get to the base of the mountain. Longstreet is going to be a Monterey Pass. And they're going to start building these defenses. Mm-hmm. They're going to fortify the South Mountain. They're going to light fires that Cedric's guys are going to see. They're going to have the, the fires going. So now Cedric's like, okay, we're afraid of them building this defense. They are building breastworks and there's a million fires out there. We think he might be he might be redeploying and defending this mountain. So he lets Mead know, and Meade immediately goes, "Whoa, stop, 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 stop!" Mm-hmm. He stops the entire thing. Says, "Everyone, freeze!" And they all just froze. Right? He says, "Do not advance toward Frederick or Middletown. After all, just don't." Okay? Lee is going to fake out Meade here for the first of two times in this in this, this little campaign. He's going to force Meade to change his plans. Now, there's going to be thirty hours that are going to go by on meade trying to figure out what the hell is Lee's trying to do. What Lee is going to do is he's going to slowly abandon. He's going to light the fires and leave them there and he's going to walk, he's going to disappear. Finally, the feds are going to discover the breastworks are abandoned and Lee bailed. Lee is going to start moving quickly towards Williamsport because he knows the infantry is not far away now. So on 7-6, Lee is going to leave those mountains and he's going to go into the Cumberland Valley. Longstreet's going to go first, followed by Hill, and followed by Yule. At this point, Meade's like, shit, okay, he reissues that order to get everyone going. Just everyone go fast. you got to advance. Now, again, it's still raining. We need to get to Fredericksburg and Middletown, but now you're 30 hours behind. So he's lost a lot of time. So Mm -hmm. this little fake that Lee did bought him, which is going to prove later, an enormous amount of time. Meade is going to be moving as fast as he possibly can. He's going to and he is going to really push his horses and his mules too hard here. So these poor animals are going to be dropping due to hunger and exhaustion by going through muddy roads, carrying these things, being pushed hard. He is going to lose 15,000 horses and mules that are going to die on this road. And they're going to clog the roads between Gettysburg and Middletown. Because he's just exhausted, he's just Mm -hmm. to death. So, that 30 hours that he lost, he's got to make up that time. So, on 7 9, this is going to lead into Boonesboro. Lee's going to begin to set up a defensive line. So he's going to create a ridge north and east of Williamsport called Sal- Salisbury Ridge. And he's going to buy time for his soldiers to build gun pits uh, and the breastworks. Now, this is when he's going to send Jeb Stewart to Hagerstown to slow the federal cavalry to reach Williamsport before the defenses can be completed.
0: This is where the Battle of Boonesboro happens, which is the largest cavalry battle during the retreat. So it's along the National and Williamsport roads in Boonesboro. And Stuart's going to organize a major assault against Buford and Kilpatrick's Union cavalry, And he's been told by Lee, basically, prevent them from getting to me. You know, kind of Stuart's been told, basically, run the clock down, you know, buy me time, because that's what he needs right now. So the one thing with this, so Stuart's been ordered to a bold demonstration to threaten and advance upon the enemy. So the rain has turned the fields and roads into an absolute shit show. And if you know anything about cavalry battles, they're often fought on horses, you know, sabers, whatever. So anyway, the charges are going to they're going to have a difficult time doing that with how the fields and the roads have been turned into like just absolute It's just a quagmire from all the rain. So they're going to have to do a lot of these assaults dismounted. And Stuart's got five cavalry brigades here. The Union infantry is going to come in and support the Union cavalry, but not until around seven o'clock. And before this, Calpatrick's left is going to crumble because they start running out of ammo. Stuart's men also end up running out of ammo and they were also exhausted. Stuart feels he's bought Lee enough time. So he calls the fight off. And it's inconclusive. And Stewart orders his troops to head towards a place called Funkstown.
1: So Funkstown, so Fitzhugh, Lee, and Stuart, they're, they're gonna get some they're gonna get some George infantry and they're gonna fight Buford there again, right? Mm-hmm. So Buford had infantry support from Cedric at this point. Um not a huge battle, about five hundred total casualties, but it's continuing to to build that time. So Lee has that directive. Listen, we're we're building this this breastwork thing, right? I need as much time as possible. So when this is all said and done, Stewart is it's, it's the thing's gonna be just about done. So on July, on July 10th, which is the day of the Battle of Funkstown, is also the day the Salisbury Ridge breastworks are going to be completed. So Stewart's job is completed. I mean, he did what he did what he had to do. Uh 710, they're gonna fill the finish those breastworks, they're gonna fill them with rebel infantry. All of them. They're gonna have all they have a nine-mile defensive front on this uh, ridge. You're gonna have Ewell on the left, you're gonna have Hill in the middle, Longstreet on the right. This, they're gonna have high ground to put artillery. This is a legit. Legitimate powerhouse defense they built here, and again, why do they care? Because they have to protect the supplies. Mm. This 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 tells you right now how important these supply wagons are to lead Yeah, he puts his entire he didn't put his whole army at Pickett's Charge, Mary. He put his whole army on this ridge. Okay, so in between Meade's approaching army and this ridge line is the stream. Okay, it's mar- like a marsh. And it's overrun because of the of the rain that they had. It was an impregnable defensive line. It was called the Downsville Line, is what they called it. Approaching from the east and Meade's guys, okay, from right to left. His battle line is going to be Ole Howard. He is going to uh-huh. be in the, on their right, okay. And you know, insert joke here, right? <laughs> he's he's going to have Newton's first corps followed by Cedric's sixth, sixth, Sykes' fifth. Hayes will be comp- will be around the second corps at this point. In Slocum's 12th, and then French is in charge of the third, which is all messed up, and they're going to be in reserve. So you're going to have basically two armies staring at each other. Now, <laughs> Meade is still nervous, right, because he sees what's going on now. So he's going to send a couple of signalmen up to a local church with field glasses to check out this downville line to see what the scoop is. And he's going to see it, and he's going to be like, okay. Meanwhile, Lee, he's multitasking, most multitaskingist, okay, He's having those pontoon bridges rebuilt at this point. He needs 26 boats to cross is what he determines. He completes that task in just 68 hours. Yeah, it's crazy. That's all it takes for lead. And so he had a lot of overtime paid by the Army of Northern Virginia, (laughs) because they did. So on 7-12 now, the rebel wagons and ambulances start crossing the Potomac at falling waters off this Potomac bridge, I mean, this um, this, uh, pontoon bridge. This is where you get lucky, too. The rain slows down for a little bit of time. So the Potomac had been cresting at 13 feet at this point. The rain slowed down and dropped to 5 feet. So now we we'll create a ford for the soldiers. They can put the guns over their heads. And yep. you couldn't do it because you're four, 3 <laughs> feet tall. But most of the soldiers could do it. And so they had an opportunity. So now Lee realizes it's his chance to get the hell out of Dodge. So he tells his generals to replace the guns on the downville line with Quaker logs, right? Quaker guns. And they're gonna have these fake Confederate flags flying from them. He's gonna light a bunch of fires behind the line to make smoke. And what that smoke is gonna do It's going to mask the army leaving so those people in the signal houses with the field glasses on the church can't see them. So they don't know what the hell is going on, but they see what they think are guns with flags flapping. This campfire is going. They probably must still be there. So on the 12th, that same day, about 4.30 p.m., Meade is going to write Halleck. And he's going to say, well, it's my intention to attack tomorrow unless something intervenes to prohibit it. So he's thinking, all right, well, tomorrow I'm going to attack. And this is going to get back to Lincoln. This is what's going to haunt him later on. Now, on the 13th, Ewell's Corps is going to be the first to evacuate that line. And they're going to ford that river with with the guns over their heads. They're going to go first. Longstreet's going to move second. And they're going to cross the bridge, the pontoon bridge. Hill is going to go last. So the smoke is screened the army perfectly. So Meade's signal guys, like I said, can't see anything. So now Meade, he's getting ready to attack. So he's going to call another council of war.
0: So he wanted the advice from his commanding officers if they should attack the strong position of the Confederate Army or not. Well, he he thinks he's got Lee pinned there. They vote not to. They decide they don't want to attack. Now, there are three of them that actually vote, yes, we would like to attack. And one of them is Wadsworth. The other is Pleasanton. And the final one that wants to attack... Is Oliver Otis Howard. So three of them want to attack. The rest of them do not want to. Now, there are those that don't have a vote. Warren is one of them. He wanted to attack. Meade also wanted to attack, but he's asking the opinion and the majority is no. So Meade, and I think this is the sign of a good commander, decides not to. On July 13th, he's going to write Halleck again. Five out of six of my corps commanders were unqualifiedly opposed to attacking Lee, which is not right considering it was Wadsworth and Howard. (laughs) In Pleasanton. Uh-huh. So, somewhere the math is not quite correct in that. Under these circumstances, I did not feel myself authorized to attack until I made more careful examination of the enemy's position, strength, and defensive works. And you got to remember that these guys that are making this decision, that are saying, no, we don't want to attack, you know, they've been through hell, right? Now, Howard has a record of saying, yes, let's attack at a few different war councils. You know, he says that. When Hooker holds the war council after Chancellorsville. And there's those that say that he's just doing that because he has something to prove, but maybe he's just aggressive. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I heard he doesn't have,
1: doesn't have an aggressive bone in his
0: body. I heard that Harry. too, but I don't believe it. Um no. Halleck's gonna write back to Mead. You are strong enough to attack and defeat the enemy before he can effect a crossing. Act upon your own judgment and make your generals execute your orders. Call no council of war. It is proverbial that councils of war never fight.
1: He's like, well, he, we got to do something. Don't forget, he told Halleck that he was attacked the next day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So he's like, well, we got to freaking do something. Yep. So the 14th, the morning of the 14th, he's going to send Kilpatrick Calry Ford to go see what the scoop is. He's going to do a little recon. Kilpatrick's going to be amazed that they're not being bothered by anybody. They're going to march right down. They're going to cross that stream. They're going to get near the breastworks and no one's there. They find the defense is completely empty. So now Kilpatrick r- rushes into Williamsport now. And guess what he sees? Nobody. Yeah. It's virtually completely devoid of revs. So we're like, well, what the hell? So he goes towards Falling Waters where he sees Hill's core the last of them getting ready to cross the bridge. Yeah. And so he's going to run into Hill's rear guard, Pete's division, basically.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So Capabra's going to approach, and he's going to attack that rear guard thinking it was a small force. He's just thinking it's going to be a small force. He ends up fighting John Brockenbrough and Joseph Davis' brigades. Now, in this fight, J. Johnson Pettigrew is going to be mortally wounded. He's going to die a few days later, mm-hmm. right? Also, um, Kasha's Michiganders, right, they're gonna push on and run into Dorsey Pender's old division. This yeah. is where they're gonna they're gonna get in trouble here. So they are beaten back almost immediately. So they get past the first line, they get to the second line, and now in battle formation is Pender's division waiting for them. And so they're whoops, see ya. And so they get pushed back pretty easily, and they're gonna it's just gonna end up being a complete mess. The rebel troops at this point are gonna cross that bridge. The, the North Carolinians are gonna be, be the last ones to cross the twenty-sixth North Carolina. That that was I always appreciated that that the twenty-sixth North Carolina who fought. It will be run with um Henry Bergwin. The, they were the beginning of the battle. They were the last one, the officially the last yep. ones to cross.
0: Yep. You know, and,
1: which is just funny how life is.
0: And he's Pettigrew and all of them. They are actually caught by surprise in this um, because they actually thought that Jeb Stewart was supposed to be screening them and protecting them. And that's what Jeb Stewart was supposed to be doing. No, no, no. Jeb Stewart has already made his way across the Potomac. And mm-hmm. this is something that doesn't, I, I, I don't think it gets talked about a lot. This is another mistake that Jeb Stuart makes. And really you could say that Pettigrew is dead because Stuart is supposed to be there. Like his orders from Lee were protect them until the last of them has, have crossed. And Stuart went ahead and crossed before Heath and his men got across.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Lee's army has effectively escaped, right? They're going to dismantle those pontoons. They're going to put it back in the back of the truck and save them for later. And they're going to march towards Winchester. And then eventually, they're going to go to Bunker Hill to basically rest at R&R. They're going to get there. They're going to rest. Now, Winchester is going to become a hospital town. It'll be under a guy by the name of John Bridgeford from the 1st Virginia Irish Battalion. He's going to be in charge of that town. They're going to get a whole bunch, thousands of injured people. They're going to take over the town. The trains are going to keep going. They're going to go to a place called Stanton, Virginia. And for the next three weeks, wounded are going to be arriving into the town. They're going to be thousands upon thousands, including Dorsey Pender. We'll get to the town. He's going to, he'll die on the 19th in in, uh, in Stanton. Many more are going to end up going all the way to Richmond, including those 4,000 prisoners of war, Mary, we yeah. talked about. They're going to get stuck going all the way to Libby, right? So they're going to get sent down. When they get there, too, they're going to have 25,000 head of cattle and 25,000 head of sheep. They're going to, like I said, they're going to have chickens. They're going to have sauerkraut. They're going to have everything <laughs> they can possibly, they've done, right? P- gets rid of, prevents, you know, all these diseases, Mary. Scurvy, for example. They're going to get sent to Mount Jackson. Those supplies are going to sustain Lee's army for the rest of 1863 and Laden, a lot of a lot of to continue fighting. If you talk about the campaign with, with the whole picture, it's successful because his retreat, Lee's is going to probably be one of the most brilliant and underrated things he'll do, considering what he had to do with that weather and the challenges he had. And the amount of time he
0: had to plan it, which which was just merely hours. You know, it's hours after Pickett's charge that he's calling in Bowdoin, you know, to his headquarters and saying, this is what I need you to do. And he's organizing it all, and they're able to get underway. When you think about how many miles these trains stretch for, They're able to get Mm -hmm. underway right away. So you don't know if maybe he had this in the back of his mind or if he's just able to think about it on the fly. This is where he's brilliant as a military commander, is in this retreat.
1: If they get beat and lose those supplies, it's game over. They're done. Yeah, because that was the whole
0: point was to get the supplies. He
1: he could not he could not feed his army anymore. They had no more supplies of Virginia Virginia, had nothing left to give them. They had to get out and they had enough food. And supplies to last the rest of the year, maybe a little longer. If they lost them all and come back empty-handed, they were dead. Mm-hmm. So they got, they did get, they were successful in that. They're going to go to Orange Courthouse, and that's where they're going to go. Meade's army is going to go to that Harpers Ferry area. They're going to take off over there. In the in the South, it's funny because no one's happy. In the South, they're. Stunned at Gettysburg, it's a complete disaster, right? In the North, they're happy about Gettysburg. Vicksburg's going on, so they're happy about that. Yeah, and Lincoln is pissed off because he really wanted Lee. Now, this is say what you will about Lincoln, and we're going to talk about his letter he didn't send. You know, you know when you get pissed off at work and you type that email and you don't send it, yeah, because you're, so, you're just pissed off, and then eventually you kill. Him. That's what he does. Lincoln's letter to Meade is probably one of the more ignorant letters it he's is. ever written. One of the most short-sighted and blind rage letters that had no basis in it, because we'll read the highlights of the letter here in a second. But on 714, he's gonna find out that Lee got across the Potomac and escaped. Yeah, and he's gonna blame Meade. He's been looking to blame him all along anyway, right? He won Gettysburg, but he thought he was being slow. He was being tender. He thought he had a McClellan on his hand again. Yeah. His letter that he wrote to me that he never sent, that we were talking today about whether or not Meat ever read this letter. And it's debated whether or not he ever was. But if he did, he would have been pretty pissed off. Yeah.
0: Well, I do have a story that some of what Lincoln said might have somehow got back to him secondhand. And I've got mm-hmm. a story to tell after this letter. I'm not going to read the entire letter, but just bits of it. But yeah, this is not... And I mean, even though Lincoln didn't send it, I get he's getting his anger out and all that, but but still, it is a very short-sighted, not understanding what not only Meade has been through, but the entire army of the Potomac has been through in these three uh-huh. days. So he says, I am very, very grateful to you for the magnificent success you have you gave the cause of country at Gettysburg. And I am now sorry to be the author of the slightest pain to you. But I was in such deep distress myself that I could not restrain some expression of it. I had been oppressed nearly ever since the Battle of Gettysburg by what appeared to be evidence of yourself and General Couch and General Smith were not seeking a collision with the enemy. So he's saying right there, oh, you're not pursuing. I can tell that. You fought and beat the enemy at Gettysburg. And of course, to say the least, his loss was as great as yours. He retreated and you did not. And it seemed to me, pressingly pursue him. But a, flood, but a flood in the river detained him till by slow degrees you were again upon him. You had at least 20,000 veteran troops directly with you and as many more raw ones within supporting distance, all in addition to those who fought with you at Gettysburg. While it was not possible that he had received a single recruit and yet you stood and let the flood run down, bridges be built and the enemy move away at his leisure without attacking him. And he just basically goes on, you know, like laying into him. About this Now, yes, I get he doesn't send this letter, but you know, he's saying things like he was within your easy grasp and to have closed upon him would in connection with our other late successes have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. If you could not safely attack Lee last Monday, how can you possibly do so south of the river when you can take with you very few more than two thirds of the force than you had in hand. It would be unreasonable to expect, and I do not expect, you can now affect much. Your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably because of it. I beg you will not consider this a prosecution or persecution of yourself, as you have learned that I was dissatisfied. I have thought it best to kindly tell you why. That line
1: about your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably. Out of bed like f. You yeah, I would have been like fuck
0: you, man. Like whole like because that... I don't care if it's the president of the United States, I don't care if it's Abraham Lincoln and you know he I, I get he doesn't send this, but this is, you know, something where it's like, whoa, what more are you expecting of this guy that you gave command 72 hours before a battle? He's probably up for the 3 days. Not sleeping much at all. I think Mead maybe slept, what, like maybe four or five hours during those three days, if that. The AOP is broken. They've lost Reynolds, Hancock's wounded, Gibbons wounded, Sickles is wounded. They've been through hell and they only have one fresh core and that's Sedgwick. And, and clearly Lincoln is thinking, oh, the, the infantry can just get up and they can just fight another day because, you know, you've got reinforcements and shit coming in and Lee can't possibly have that. You know, it, it's just so, you know, and I get he's angry, but still. Like, it shows that he's not really understanding the situation that Meade has been through.
1: Well, I think that was the big put. I don't think he understood the situation. I think he saw a linear thing. Well, we beat him. He was damaged. Why couldn't you just go chase him? I think he didn't realize the dangers he felt. Clearly, he didn't send a letter. So someone got in his ear and said, dude,
0: no, like, don't. don't." You're being an asshole. Don't do this. But the other thing, too, to compare it to Vicksburg, Vicksburg was a siege. Very, very different than what Meade is going through. You know, not to downplay Vicksburg at all. Vicksburg's amazing. Grant and those men out there have been through absolute hell for nine months. To put that on on Meade too, and I get Meade didn't get to see this, but now he might have, as we were talking about today. But the one thing that did happen is soon after the battle happened, Oliver Otis Howard writes Lincoln a letter. And it's in complete praise of Meade saying... How well he did at the Battle of Gettysburg and how well he did in the retreat. And Lincoln wrote Howard back and he said, Thanks, but starts listing these criticisms of Meade that probably aren't as bad as what's written in this letter that was never sent. But you know full well that Oliver Otis Howard probably went back to Meade and said, This is how this guy is feeling about you. Mm-hmm. Right now, so yeah, Meade so, would have so, got wind of it one way or another. What's happening? Well,
1: and it's this letter. Then there are rumors that when Grant comes east to take over the army, it's to babysit Meade, and Meade is mm-hmm. fired. This is where it kind of all starts, right? It, it's that historical memory we talked about. But the reality was, Meade did close to everything right he could on this retreat. He really, really could. Yep. Ken Masters and Brown's book *Retreat from Gettysburg* was mostly the primary source for. For this this episode. Yeah. And we're gonna be doing it for our book club. But if you've read this book and you still feel Meade screwed up, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. But I,
0: I don't think he did screw up.
1: No, I don't think he I think he did what he had to do. The last thing you want to do is coming off of a much much needed Union victory, coupled with the Vicksburg siege ending, was to run into the jaws of death after winning. Against a guy like Robert E. Lee. And he he truthfully did not know what Lee was doing, but the next day he was already chasing him. So it wasn't like he sat around like McClellan would have, like the stories you think about. He did what he had to do. And at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, the thing that gets him was, we're going to attack tomorrow. That's what gets him. Yeah. Right. And then the next day, of course, they're gone. Yeah. And that's why that 30 hours is so important that Lee did. And so the retreat is brilliant by Lee, but it's good by Meade. But Lee does pants him twice on this. He does. He does. So he does get the better of Meade, the you know the, the inexperienced you know army commander, the old cagey veteran Robert E. Lee. Yeah. So Lee is brilliant on this. He is. So if you look at the Gettysburg campaign from beginning to the end, he got in, got his supplies, got out. The battle was a mess, obviously, but he got out with all the supplies he thought he needed. Mm-hmm then it's hard to sit here and say Gettysburg a disaster because it just wasn't. The battle was, but the campaign was not. No. But this is something that when you look at Robert E. Lee, when you look at the the top front of mind headline things, his retreat from Gettysburg has got to be right at the top, at least one of them with chancersville oh, sure. it's fredericksburg yeah. it's, it's got to be up there it really does it, it is
0: it is really really brilliant um the one thing i want to add is that meade went to washington to meet with lincoln a few weeks after the retreat and uh, lincoln said to him do you want to know what i thought of your retreat and meade's like what did you think of my retreat and lincoln says you were like an old woman trying to shoe her geese across the creek what yeah that's um what? i don't
1: know
0: man that i don't is know about not, that. Like if I mean, were Meade, that would
1: be fuck you. Well, you, you, can see, you can see why people have got upset with the meddling, why guys like Reynolds didn't want to take control. Not that I guess Lincoln, but he was a politician. He wasn't yeah. a general. And so it's easy to sit back a Monday morning quarterback and blame, but he wasn't there, right? If he were, it might have been a little bit different. But that's that's, that's unfortunate. Yeah. But history did prove Mead correct and prove Lincoln wrong on this. And Lincoln did feel bad about this later. He yeah. did do, do a mea culpa with this, and he realized he was wrong. But the Gettysburg campaign was, was an interesting one, and both teams could kind of hold their heads high about different things on it. For the Union, it got the desperate victory they needed in battle. Yep. For the Confederacy, it got the supplies they desperately needed. Yeah, Lee did get away the way Hooker got away at Chancellorsville, and they both lived to fight another day.
0: Yeah,
1: But if not for those supplies, Army of Northern Virginia is probably dead in the water. That's probably it. Exactly. Right there. Yeah. So they would have, you know, they would have had to surrender. So, so that's the scoop. That's the, uh, the retreat from Gettysburg. So, uh, so what's next?
0: So next week we are talking uh monocacy and then we're going to be talking first bull run. Um right. And on the 21st, we also have our next round table. So two weeks from tomorrow night or Wednesday night. So um when this episode drops, we'll be less than two weeks away. So if you've never attended our round tables before, they're just get together, hang out, have a beverage via Zoom, and just talk Civil War. So info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com. We will add you to the list at 6 o'clock on Wednesday, July the 21st.
1: Got it. Okay. Well, Mary, again, fun, action-packed episode. Yeah, Yeah, so we'll get ready to do some big and better things down the road. So once again, we are off into bigger and better things, which we head towards monocacy, which is another fun little battle. We'll talk about that. And it's more of a battle than just a campaign,
0: but we'll definitely talk about some cool people at that. Thanks for all you did for this episode, too, because this was... I know what the Gettysburg retreat, the whole Gettysburg campaign is for you. And you brought it to each episode we did about it. Oh, it's
1: fun. It, it, the retreat is, is one of my favorite things to talk about. Cause it's just so interesting. It's, real, it's, it's very, so,
0: very interesting.
1: And there's so many colorful characters in it in Bowdoin, mm-hmm. Kilpatrick and, in people like that. But it's, um, it really tells a story. It really puts the whole thing into perspective, the whole picture. Like I said, the people who go to Gettysburg, what I would highly suggest you do is take a ride down Fairfield road, go through Monterey Pass, stop at the battle up there. There's a little spot you can stop. Continue all the way through the gaps, head down to Winchester, go through Go through Williamsport first, go through Fall. just make the retreat. The Lee Retreat to Winchester is a real fun day trip. Mm-hmm. And I would highly suggest anybody who does it to do it. If you haven't, then um, you should definitely try it. So it's definitely a lot of fun. So, okay, so off we go. So any final words from you there, Fincheru?
0: Thanks to all our listeners and thanks to you as well.
1: Well, thanks for you as well. So off we go. So look forward to talking to Monocacy. We'll talk to you soon, Mary. Our live is Saturday. Roundtable is around the corner. And we will uh, get ready for the next one. So off we go to Monocacy, as they say.
0: Yep. I'll see. We'll see you all next week, guys.
1: Peace out, everybody.
0: Bye.